0: Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you again. We are going to be in the third sermon in the series, in the last sermon of this series. The title of the series is, There are predictable liabilities in discerning the supernatural. And this morning we're in Matthew 11, 20 to 24. And you will see an outline on your bulletin there. I'll be following along pretty closely with that. This morning we're going to see the liability in failing to recognize the purpose and function of divine miracles. But before we look at that in detail, I want to give you a reminder that the Scriptures speak to the reality of the supernatural. We believe that the Bible is a book that speaks not only to the reality of the supernatural world but to the reality of the person of Jesus' divine character. In the Scriptures, we see the authority with which Jesus speaks about this supernatural world, and we see his extraordinary power to heal every kind of disease within this supernatural world. We believe that the Bible speaks authoritatively and factually about the spirit world of cherubims, and seraphims and demons and angels that are all part of this supernatural world. As Christians, we believe that every word in the original manuscripts is authored by God and is therefore truthful and historically accurate in its entirety, including what it makes reference to this supernatural world and to the divine character of Jesus which means that we don't pick and choose verses that we think sound more reasonable or more truthful than other verses. We don't incorporate our own rationale or logic as the basis for determining the believability of any particular part of Scripture. We base the believability of everything in the Scripture on the fact of its own testimony that God is the author, of scripture. The fact that God cannot lie then is the foundation for believing that all of the scriptures are true. Well let me briefly review where we've been in the last parts of the series, the first couple sermons. In part one, the first sermon, we saw Jesus's challenge for all people to acknowledge the reality of the kingdom of God. In the individual responsibility for each person to be a discerning person about the spiritual world. Be the kind of people that show good judgment and insight when it comes to understanding the reality of spiritual truths. And most importantly, use spiritual discernment to recognize that your attitude toward Jesus the Messiah determines your eternal destination. Last week in part two, we saw the liability in failing to discern Jesus' power and authority in healing and teaching. We looked at Jesus' response to two unlikely individuals who Recognized and submitted to the reality of Jesus' divine power and authority over this supernatural world. And we saw his challenge to the crowds following him to be careful to correctly discern that his power to heal and his authority to teach are a testimony to his divinity and godly character. And then today, in part three, we're going to see the liability in failing to recognize the supernatural purpose and function of divine miracles. Because the intention of miracles was to move the observer to not only become acutely aware of their errors and sinfulness, but to motivate the observer to abhor their sins as well. And so let me read then Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Serious words there, aren't they? Well, here within Matthew 11:20 20 to 24, we see Jesus depicted as the judge of the human race, where he scolds those who refuse to repent, where He pronounces grave misery upon those who remain unaffected and indifferent. his mighty works and teaching where he announces a day of judgment and the degree of punishment to be meted out to each individual three times in that passage 20 to 24 Jesus uses the phrase mighty works the single word for mighty works used here in the Greek is the word dunamis translated as power Emphasizing the superhuman, supernatural nature of Jesus's works. In effect, these mighty works demonstrate the presence of the greatness of God's power and his glory. And just as we noted in the other two sermons and passages we have looked at, the observance of these mighty works carried with them a huge personal responsibility and so the text this morning begins then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent and so the criticism and the denunciation of these cities came because what should have happened as a result of seeing the mighty works didn't happen What should have happened didn't happen. And so we see the purpose of the mighty works then was to bring about repentance. The cities were denounced because the mighty works didn't lead to individual repentance, but they should have. And so the primary goal of the healing miracles isn't only to cast out demons or make someone able to see or hear or walk. The primary goal is to bring about personal repentance. And where the healings were happening and repentance wasn't happening, woes were proclaimed. And repentance is always correlated with faith or belief. Jesus began his ministry in Matthew with repent and believe. Those are at the heart of Jesus' first command regarding the kingdom of God. And remember this, even though Jesus's biblical and divine mighty works often captured people's attention and amazed and surprised them and even stunned the observer at times, miracles can't compel someone to repent. The miracles were clearly insufficient in themselves to convert the skeptic or the cynic or the committed hardened unbeliever to acknowledge who Jesus was. And folks, the Bible is teeming with accounts of individuals and groups who witnessed undeniable miracles, yet persisted in their unbelief and rejection of God's Son and his message. And of course, Judas should come to mind immediately. But think of the Israelites in Egypt who experienced every miracle that God did to convince Pharaoh to release the Israelites to him. And miracles beyond counting in the desert, the daily manna from heaven, the daily sights of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Plus, numerous extraordinary miracles did not produce faith because of the corrupt, disobedient hearts of many of the Israelites. All those that came out of Egypt who saw those miracles died in the desert because of unbelief at Kadesh Barnea, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. All of them, that entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, they all died in the desert. So miracles can give sufficient proof that a message and messenger are from God, but they don't provide irresistible evidence that compels individual repentance and submission. So let's take a moment to consider the etymology, the historical development of the word repentance. Repentance is the word meta Meta means after. Noe'o means to perceive. And so repentance is a determined change of conduct within the person as a result of this after-perception of Jesus' mighty works. So as witnesses to the miracles of Jesus, their after-perception should have made them conscious of their sins to the point of sorrowing for them. And then they should have become intent on obtaining God's pardon for their sins. And that didn't happen, and that's why these cities were denounced. And because you should have had this change of mind after witnessing the mighty works, that should have led you to a regret for the past course of life that you had been pursuing, which would then result in not only a Change of mind, but a new determined course of action for your future. Some big things should have happened to you for observing the miracles. And folks, it's more than just having a thought in your mind, you know, looking back, I should have acted otherwise. It's so much more than, you know, I think after observing the miracles, I think I'll turn over a new leaf. It's not that. Seeing the miracle should have connected you to the reality of your personal violation of God's moral law. So the sense is that this witnessing of his mighty works should lead to a mighty change in your mind, in your heart, in your life. Observing the miracle should have led to such a virtuous alteration of the mind and a change of purpose in your life that it would have birthed within you a real change in your personal life and practice. The afterknowledge of the experiencing of experiencing Jesus' miracles should have moved them to not only become acutely aware of their errors and sinfulness, but to abhor them as well. And they should have been able to determine within themselves after seeing the miracles I have to enter a better course of life for myself there should have been a drastic overtaking of the way you looked at things and so the expectation then was that witnessing the mighty works of Jesus meant we now need to be embracing the reality of our sinfulness in a true expression of of sorrow for it and so the expectation for today for those who have believed in Jesus is to demonstrate that we've seen the light by turning to God and doing works worthy of repentance And you see the continuing ultimatum here, just like in the Sermon on the Mount, right? That the attitude of our hearts toward Jesus the Messiah determines and sets the stage for our eternal destination. Interestingly, in the passage right before those statements in Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 24, neither John nor Jesus were able to please the unbelieving Jews of those cities. And it was a disgraceful thing that those Israelites were unable to see that both John and Jesus were clearly God's messengers. And so in his denouncing of the cities Jesus was in effect telling them that they were like miserable children when it comes to using their eyes and their ears to discern what they should have seen behind the mighty works. He's implying the men of this generation have ears, but they don't hear what I'm saying. And they have eyes to see the mighty works I'm performing, but their eyes don't recognize that the kingdom of God is right in front of them. And because they fail to discern that the miracles indicate the presence of God's kingdom, they will not receive the truth. Well, let me give you a good definition of repentance. Some people say it's repentance unto life. Here's the definition. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as your knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. J.I. Packer. And so the reason for this failure to respond to the miracles of Jesus in repentance is not found in the miracles themselves, but in the observer. Sinners love sin. They are enamored of their stubborn rebellion against God. And even clear, plain, undeniable, unmistakable divine miracles cannot transform a sinner into a believing saint. And it's not just that men are unwilling to see their sinfulness and their need for repentance when they observe Jesus' mighty works. It's that they are unable to see what the necessary response is. Because of his sin, his whole being is corrupted, so that he's incapable of acknowledging the holiness and glory in Jesus' mighty works. And so where repentance wasn't happening, where it should have been happening, where it was expected to happen, woes were pronounced. And so now we see that there is a tension in the theology of miracles. We said that men are unable to see that the necessary response to Jesus' mighty works is repentance. But still, that is what should have happened. Yet, if they can't respond in repentance because of the depth of their sinfulness, how can they be expected to be responsible to repent after they've observed the miracles? There's the tension. And so the tension exists because Scripture teaches that men should repent, but they're unable to. And the reason that some men are unable to repent is because God grants people repentance. And yet the tension theologically is that men are personally held accountable when they don't repent. You're seeing the problem, right? We can go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 29, to see that it is God alone who grants repentance and opens the eyes and the heart of the observer of mighty works. This is what Moses wrote, or was written in the book. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw. The signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see and ears to hear." And so just like the failure to respond with repentance to the mighty works of Jesus, the faculties to respond were there but they lack the spiritual power from God to perceive what the miracles called for and to use those faculties to properly repent. And though Scripture teaches that the natural man is utterly disabled by indwelling sin in all the faculties of his spirit and his soul and his body from thinking or feeling or acting with any spiritual good toward God, Every bit of the responsibility to properly respond to the mighty works of Jesus with repentance always falls on the individual and not on God. That's the theological tension that so many people misunderstand. Here's the reason for that. Because men are persuaded by their own evil to respond to Jesus with criticism and indifference because they freely choose that evil response and the reason Jesus can rightly declare woes upon their rejection is because men are at liberty to act according to their own choices and their own inclinations and in their own sin without being compelled or restrained by any outside force So divine miracles are not a cure-all for unbelief. The expected outcome to being a witness to the mighty works of Jesus was a repentant heart. But mighty works don't compel someone to repentance. And so whatever purpose someone had formed or established in their mind regarding the miracles they were seeing or whatever indifference they felt toward Jesus after witnessing his mighty works, the proper response to those mighty works should have been repentance. They should have had a change of mind and a change in the direction of their life. And I think this tension is explained by understanding what equal ultimacy is, And is not. In fact, I would encourage you—this is going to be a difficult discussion for a minute—to look up the word equal ultimacy and discover what it is that that is talking about. Equal ultimacy and the problem behind it is a difficult theological distinction to make, and I'm not sure where Rob stands on this, so I wanted to I want to let you know that this is my current explanation to this theological tension. I haven't talked to Rob about this. I have a feeling that he'd agree with me, though, and I would actually encourage you to examine more closely this topic. But equal ultimacy means that God would have to intervene in the damnation of the unbeliever in the same way that he has to intervene in the salvation of the believer, if equal ultimacy were true. If the condition of the fallen sinner is that he has a desperately wicked heart, is by nature a child of wrath, is someone who does not seek for God, someone who can do no good in terms of meriting. His own salvation, someone who's shut up under sin, and someone who is enslaved to various lusts, as the scriptures we believe in continuously testify, then it's not necessary for God to intervene in order to bring about their destruction. Like it is necessary to intervene in the salvation of the sinner. There's not an equally divine causality behind both. James said, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Nor does God cause them not to believe in Jesus And not to receive Christ. God merely lets them go in the direction of their own natural choices of rebellion and denial of God, even after witnessing miracles. He simply does not intervene to save them like he intervenes to save those he has elected. If he intervened to damn the reprobate in the same manner that he intervenes to save the elect, then equal ultimacy would be true. Let me help you to hear that again. If he intervened to damn the reprobate in the same manner that he intervenes to save the elect, then equal ultimacy would be true, but that's not a biblical concept. So our challenge is to allow God to be sovereign then in salvation. The text in Matthew 11 says, Most of his mighty works were happening in cities where the people did not repent. Jesus chose to do mighty works in some cities where the people had not believed. And believing goes hand in hand with repentance. And sometimes he heals people so that those watching, like Matthew chapter 8, who did not believe would have an opportunity to believe and repent. But note in Matthew 13 58 the text says and he did not do mighty works there in Nazareth because of their unbelief. So putting this together in some instances Jesus chooses to do mighty works where they did not believe in order to encourage faith and repentance. And in other instances, he chooses not to do mighty works because they did not believe. Jesus said in the passage we're looking at this morning, he knows that if he had done mighty works in Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, He knows what the outcome would have been. They would have believed and then repented, he said. And he decides whether or not to demonstrate to individual cities the mighty works that could have led to their repentance. I want you to get a good taste of the tension this morning. And so we can't talk about the frequency of the mighty works without acknowledging God's sovereign hand and choices in when they happen. He has his own reasons for not performing mighty works in a particular city. So how should we understand this passage regarding Jesus choosing not to perform some mighty works that could lead to repentance, Within other contexts of Scripture. So let's think about reconciling first Timothy two three to four and second Timothy two twenty-four, for example. You're familiar with first Timothy two three to four. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come. To the knowledge of the truth. So we ask the question then, if God desires for all people to be saved but doesn't decree that all be saved, how should we understand this passage? Clearly, all does not mean every existing individual because God does not decree to save every individual. We do know from other scriptures, particularly in Revelation, That he desires that all kinds of men from every tribe, every tongue, every nationality be among those who are saved. Which is why we share the gospel with everyone. In our passage this morning, Jesus knows that he would have had to do the same mighty works in Tyre and Sidon that he did in Capernaum to bring Tyre and Sidon to repentance But in some of the Jewish cities, he didn't do those necessary works to bring them to repentance. So for whatever reasons known only to him, Jesus decides sometimes not to do the kinds of mighty works in some cities that would bring them to repentance, faith, and salvation. So there must be other factors that we don't know about that come into play that affect that decision to produce actions that would lead to repentance, salvation, and a knowledge of the truth. So here's something to consider. Simply because God's stated desire in 1 Timothy is that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, That does not necessarily bring about the actions necessary for that to happen. There's some outside reason that we aren't familiar with. And so we have to bow to God's sovereign reasons and choices when we consider why he chooses to heal some and not others. And why he chooses some cities over others to do mighty works that could have led to their repentance and faith. We have to allow God to be sovereign in salvation. Now we see this from another section of the pastoral epistles in 2 Timothy 2.25, which clearly says God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Even within the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy 2.25 does not say God grants repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth to everyone because he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is God who gives the gift of repentance, which leads to a knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is, just like we read back in Deuteronomy earlier. And he may or may not grant to a particular city or individual the necessary grace so that they might be led to repentance, salvation, and a knowledge of the truth by observing his miracles. and so for me this is the solution we don't need to know why god gives the gift of repentance to some and not to others we don't need to know why he performs miracles that might lead to repentance and salvation in some cities and not in others we don't need to know the reason for that because the focus on the passage this morning is clear enough without needing to know God's reasons for what he chooses to do. All that we need to know is that the clear teaching from this morning is that anyone witnessing the mighty works of Jesus who has an opportunity to believe him because of the miracles he is witnessing is under a greater condemnation for rejecting him than those who have not had the opportunity. And so, this is the great cause for us to be joyful in having had the opportunity to believe and to repent. The reason Capernaum was to be brought down to Hades was because that city had, in effect, been exalted to heaven in the privileges that he had enjoyed in being witnesses to the glory and power of God in Jesus. But the reality is, in their witnessing the mighty works of Jesus, nothing but unbelief and indifference and cynicism was affected in them. We saw that last week as well. Miracles were Jesus' credentials that bear testimony to his claims, and those who witnessed them were under greater condemnation for their unbelief, which means there are degrees of punishment meted out on Judgment Day. Verses 22 and 24 say, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, and it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you, Capernaum. There are levels of judgment So that means that all punishment on Judgment Day will not be equally terrible for everyone. Notice, of course, that there is the statement of the reality of Judgment Day. There is a day of judgment awaiting the world. It is, quote, "...the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds." Unquote. <clears throat> It is the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, Paul said in Romans chapter 2. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2.9, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The punishment then that is meted out will be in proportion to the opportunities given and rejected, in proportion to the privileges given and then scorned, in proportion to the light that was granted but was quenched, It will be a most intolerable doom for those who have abused the greatest opportunity to become members of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus, but chose otherwise. That means that all punishment on Judgment Day will not be equally terrible. Those who had the opportunity to repent because they saw firsthand Jesus performing miracles that should have led to their repentance, but who were indifferent to the mighty works and to Jesus himself, they're going to face a stronger punishment. This is a principle throughout the New Testament, by the way. The reality of Judgment Day will be more bearable and more tolerable for some. This principle is seen In Luke chapter 12, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. That's clear. And then follows the spiritual principle upon which those statements are based. Jesus said, therefore everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the most. The more knowledge you have, the more accountable you are. And if you witnessed the divine teaching and miracles of Jesus, but were indifferent and condemning toward it, you are more responsible." In the proclamation of these woes, Jesus declares the degree of relative punishment that will be meted out as penalties to those cities that fail to recognize that right before them is the divine and wonderful King, Jesus. This declaration of woes is simply a further indication that he is who he says he is, when he states that failure to believe in him is cause for their eternal punishment. But folks, think of the audacity of anyone else in history claiming that everyone who does not believe in him will suffer the doom of hell. (laughs) So here's our premise. In pronouncing the woes upon the cities, Jesus isn't requiring repentance simply from the wicked and the immoral or the self-righteous or those who are depraved. Anyone witnessing the miracles and hearing his teaching about the kingdom who is indifferent to his claims will fall under severe judgment. That's the teaching of the last three sections we've looked at. As I've been saying throughout this series, this calls for great discernment on the part of each individual. And you know the reality is that this speaks to a very unfortunate truth for the United States. Many people in this country operate under a worldview that has no awareness of a pending judgment day and the degree to which we are going to be held accountable for the light we have been given. And we have received a lot of light in the United States. Think about the truth of so many, and the failure of so many to respond appropriately to Jesus, even today. So many people, so hardened in their hearts, because of years of living in a culture that's blinded by worldliness, and privilege and materialism and prejudice and unconfessed sin that has ruined their ability to comprehend who Jesus is. This is one of the three of the most serious passages in the Bible just like the other two we looked at. All three of the passages we have studied record some of the most fearful words of judgment which were ever uttered by Jesus. The sole effect of the gospel preached to those who did not repent was to plunge them into yet deeper depths of guilt because of their refusal to believe in Jesus. But let's not forget the miracle of our faith. It's also a great blessing for us who believe in spite of the pending woes and punishment for so many who will refuse Jesus. Thomas Watson said that those who have Jesus are the crown and glory of Christianity. Listen to the way he described this transition to Jesus. He said that the tide of sin, which before did run so strong, should be so easily turned, that the sinner who a little before was sailing hellward and lacked neither wind nor tide to carry him there, should now suddenly alter his course and tack about for heaven. What a miracle this is! To see an earthly man become heavenly, a carnal man become spiritual, a loose man become precise, a proud man become humble, A covetous man become liberal and a harsh man become meek is to behold the greatest of miracles in the human heart. So here's the picture we've seen in these last three sermons. Jesus patiently, repeatedly, mercifully entreating sinners to believe in him through his teaching and his mighty works. the patience of Jesus and God so that they might without doubt plainly see that the kingdom of God had arrived on planet earth and that their only proper response to Jesus is repentance and faith Jesus has given us more than enough evidence to properly discern his power and his authority and teaching and his holiness And instead of leaping up for joy at the opportunity to embrace his person, all that so many offer him today is their fatal criticism and utter indifference. But notice that when Jesus sees this critical and indifferent response to him, he can't remain morally neutral. In his perfection, he can't be indifferent to our sin and rejection. And so his proclamation of woe to entire cities must come because they've refused his mercy and his love. People who choose indifference don't become the object of Jesus' pity. They become the object of his holy and jealous wrath. Folks, there cannot be a greater crime, according to Scripture, than to reject the person of Jesus. Jesus. Unbelief is the only sin that cannot be forgiven. Every other sin can be forgiven. There cannot be a human mistake greater than mistaking Jesus for someone he is not. And because there cannot be a greater crime or a greater mistake that men make about the person of Jesus, the only fitting punishment for that crime and that mistake is the vengeance of the punishment of hell. That's how serious it is to discern the reality of who Jesus is. We ought to be very careful about any sentiments of ingratitude or indifference or cynicism that begins to creep into our lives regarding the gospel in the person of Jesus. In the light of these judgment woes, each of us would be wise to acknowledge that we have been highly favored with God's grace, to not only hear the plain declaration of the gospel, but to respond in faith and with a repentant heart. We should be reminded of the blessings we have received from the Lord Jesus. And now we are indebted because we have received the grace to repent and acknowledge him as our glorious Lord and Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, what tremendous words you have challenged us with this morning. Father, we understand the responsibility that each of us has to make the choice to walk through the narrow gate or the broad gate, or to choose indifference and cynicism to your person, or to fall at your feet and recognize that you are Lord and Master. Father, help us to be an encouragement to each other to gain greater faith and to trust you, and to live lives that, that openly respond well to who you are, as you're always before our thoughts. Father, thank you for the time we've had these last three weeks, and we pray your blessing on us all in Christ's name. Amen.